Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Today, we're going to talk about chatbots with Ian, Rob, Jocelyn, and Marvin. I'm Jason Salas, a member of the Heroku support team and a lifelong user of connected network chat services. Let's go around and introduce each of my co-hosts today. Ian? Uh, my name is Ian. I'm an engineer on the chatbot runtime team, and uh, I work on the application side of the product as opposed to infrastructure side. I'm Rob. I also work alongside Ian on the application side, and um, we work to build out all the individual microservices on top of Heroku. Yeah, I'm Jocelyn. I'm uh, also just a software engineer um, focused primarily on the uh, more on the infrastructure side and empowering uh, empowering the developers with tooling so that they can uh, you know be productive. Hi, I'm Marvin. I work alongside with everyone else. Focuses on infrastructure as well. So we've been uh, moving all of our uh, moving a lot of our uh, work over to Roku, and this is our story. Awesome. That being said, give me an introduction to this project. How did we get to starting this project? So a long, a long time ago, we had this thing called Live Agent. When our customers need to handle a support case, they would do a live chat, and everything was backed up by a human behind it, which, as you can imagine, led to a lot of hours. So chatbots came along to kind of fill that need and say, well, why can't we automate a lot of the basic use cases for what people are using support for. Uh, and that's kind of the history of the product here. Take out some of that human element and leverage the Salesforce platform to hopefully automate and help people without getting anyone else involved. Right. There is a bit there is a bit of a appeal of the conversational element. Uh, you know, so the, the service industry at large is something that benefits very highly from this. Uh, and it's the matter of having the technology to being able to fulfill so many aspects of this um, to, to um, I, I, I very much don't want to say replace a human, but certainly augment their capabilities for things that happen at just such a, such a high scale. Yeah, I think a big part of it, too, is just being able to give humans tasks that they're good at instead of just clicking, you know, reset password for someone. Let, you know, let the computer do that and they can listen to a more complicated support case and, and work there. So yeah, it's definitely not to replace. It's more to give them actual interesting real work to do as opposed mm -hmm. to doing boring stuff that can be automated. There's something that I've certainly learned uh, in my years of support experience so far is the documentation it, because, because everybody learns and, um, and interacts a little bit differently. It is really advantageous to have multiple mediums, written mediums, video mediums. Uh, there's obviously, you know, a a, uh, a role for purely audio kind of a guided feedback, guided help. Uh, and then uh, in the most recent case, the interactivity uh, offered by chatbots kind of makes things a little bit more friendlier than just a, a series of web pages with you know, unchanging images that say, go here, do this, uh, when something can be a little bit more multi-step, multi-input, uh, or just a variety of use cases in one centralized place. That's one of the nice things, too, is have the 
the machine learning behind it as well to kind of pick up and also drop you in the right place should we know you're looking for a specific article if we can't handle your your situation send you to the right areas was there any more explicit purpose for creating them uh yeah i mean i don't know if, i don't know if i want to like speculate on on products decision i know that you know chatbots were kind of a thing coming up in the market in a big way and uh given businesses built on salesforce's platform uh, just it kind of just made sense with the overall direction the market was going, and given the Salesforce data backing it, it was like a no-brainer. I think a lot of people basically pay Salesforce to automate a lot of their business, right? So uh, for us, our specific area is on service, and this is one of the ways that you basically can make much better use of, um, you know, if I'm a company and I'm interacting with uh, customers, uh, this allows me to, you know, help more customers with a good experience. And I don't have to increase my staff, and that's a huge win, right? And that ends up being kind of the target market for us uh, is folks that start growing their customer base or already have a large base uh, and be able to, to make better use of resources. That's huge. So how are they being used? What actual kind of tasks and workflows are they have they been able to very largely take over so far? I mean, we, we've got all different ones. Um, you know, the main thing would be something like, where is my order something that very easily you could look up in a database and say, you know, it's on its way. Here's a tracking number. A lot of use cases are, are in e-commerce, um, just on general inquiries about order uh, status like that. But in reality, I mean, they could be used for anything. We, we hook into the, the whole Apex and Salesforce scripting language. So really, you can have a chatbot call out to any API and pretty much do anything. Uh, they're they're very open ended, which is one of the really neat things about the product. Yeah, I think one of the kind of really cool use cases that they did is um, you know every year we have Dreamforce, and there's usually a lot of different questions which come in, and instead of having people staff like a chat room to basically help answer questions for people, we had a chat bot there. So if people are looking for like directions or schedules or whatever on what uh, what talks are coming up get a map, whatever, they were able to just interact with the bot straight out of our app. And from there, just, you know, basically get the information they needed. And uh, it turns out that, you know, very few actual human agents really needed to be involved. I know I've used uh, uh, an almost uncountable number of chat networks, uh, as I think of my uh, history uh, on the internet and larger connected networks. I've used various chat bots. Um, it's called SmarterBot, I believe. That's just a web page front end and does those things. I, I've made and interacted with a whole host of IRC bots, XMPP bots. Um, more recently, Discord and Slack are the real prominent ones. Uh, and there's no lack of app integration and bots present on those mediums. Uh, so where do these chat bots reside? What medium does an individual go to to begin this conversation? From the beginning, we had that, what we call Live Agent, which is our customer support product. Our bot has kind of integrated into that. So it would be a web page. You'd click a button that says, contact us. And now instead of being routed to a human, you get routed to a, a chat bot. More recently, we're opening them up, up other channels. Facebook is going to be a big one. A few other messenger channels, SMS. But as of right now, yeah, I mean, we're growing the list of channels we support. There's been a couple spikes working with Alexa. So we, we can plug in. We're, we're essentially an API. Yeah, I think the most traditional is 
if I'm a business, I have a website and then my customer comes to my website, clicks on support or, or anything like that, you can pop up a, a window, you know, basically a chat window. And I think that's the most traditional, but you know, like Rob was saying, you know, we're definitely adding more and more uh, different ways to get to a bot so that our customers can hook it up in whichever way they want. So it was to, to use the example of e-commerce you were saying before, this isn't solely a uh, Salesforce customer speaking to Salesforce. It can also be, I believe you used the term customers of customers earlier uh, for individual individual e-commerce backs. Um, they can They can embed this bot functionality that is siloed specifically to their set of data, their set of circumstances, their uh, tasks, uh, you know, what their, what their business actually is and that sort of information as well. Exactly right. Yeah. So our, our customers, Salesforce's customers will go in and configure their own bots within their, uh, their organization. And that's what we end up serving is uh, their bots to their customers. Right. Yeah. So you have this large scope across mediums, the vast amount of data that this bot has to be able to access. Why did you choose to use Heroku? The primary reason, I mean, so what's interesting about on this podcast right now, uh, we have about half the team. So to give a scaling size of the team, we have eight engineers, um, eight engineers to develop this product and uh, and own the entire product too. And that's a very important piece as far as... Um, the ownership of it, so taking calls for it, so being on a pager rotation for it, uh, making sure that it's it's scaling well, and also developing it, making sure that you know everything gets done in a tight timeline. All of these things they all kind of factored into. Okay, we have eight people, and we're all engineers, we're all developers. Um, some of them, like me, you know, come from a little bit more of an and Marvin come from an operational background, so we definitely have you know more experience in. Uh, doing some low, lower level operational things. Um, but with the team size of eight, you know, we can't afford uh, doing some more on-premise or, you know, DIY on AWS, you know, EC2 and, and managing our own databases. And there's a lot of management and administrative overhead there that a team of eight, you know, that needs to develop this product and serve it across the world too. That's a big requirement was Salesforce customers exist not just in the U.S., but in Europe and, you know, Tokyo, Sydney, you know, all over the place. And uh, Heroku kind of provided all that management, the operational uh, administrative overhead, takes takes all that for us, you know, database maintenances, um, all that kind of stuff handled for us. Uh, then the, the product itself for engineers. So for Rob and Ian, they could probably talk more on this, but just the tooling for Heroku... Uh, it's so amazing has been developed over a course of many, many years and the engineers love it. So the operational minded engineers like myself and Marvin on this, on this podcast, you know, we, we love it from, okay, all these things are handled for us on the shoulders of giants, you know, Heroku probably manages millions of Postgres databases and has expertise there. Uh, we could learn Postgres and sort of manage it, but in a team of eight, that's, one out of your eight, and then you know, I'm backup for it. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, leveraging all that is kind of the one side of the coin. The other is just Heroku's development experience is amazing. Salesforce is very Java heavy, and our engineer, we were asked, you know, can we kind of stay within that ecosystem of developing Java applications? And, you know, Heroku, yeah, sure. 
they support, they have a full Java build pack and set of documentation for Java engineers to get started on Heroku, just get up and go, you know? Um, so that's, it's kind of at a high level administrative, um, overhead taken from us. And then also all the tooling overhead that we don't have to write for engineers. Um, and we, it just empowered us to get stuff done. That's why we chose it. I, I think you said, you know, we right, we're a team of eight. And I feel like it's important also to mention that we're running at least 10 applications. I'd, I'd have to keep count, but, you know, in terms of the actual engineers versus ops, where there, and there's four of us or so, and we're, we're running 10 plus applications across multiple versions, every region, high availability with zero downtime deploys. It's actually pretty amazing we were able to scale up this fast and it's all pretty much due to Heroku and how how easy it is to work with it and how, you know, like Joss was saying, when we're using Kafka or Postgres or Redis, we, we can trust that it's up, that someone else is, is making sure that that's working. Uh, it, it takes a lot off our, our backs, I think. I think the most surprising detail of that description is that uh, you call it a product, which is certainly a step up from a feature, uh, but it seems a little surprising to me that the ownership is contained in this group such that it has, uh, such that you have your dedicated on-call rotation and that you're basically a uh, an organization all to yourselves for this particular situation uh, that you inevitably, you know, architected, prototyped and set up, scaled up and are running this entirely amongst yourselves, obviously with additional insight from the rest of the organization as you need it. Uh, but that operationally, uh, as you said, I am talking to half of the staff of this project so far, uh, and it's very dedicated in scope, but with the huge amount of data backing it that it ultimately interfaces with. Yeah, and so just to kind of draw a box around what specifically our team is responsible for, um, this this product is is pretty large. Um, there's an entire interface that our Salesforce customers will use to build and configure their bots. I mean, they can they literally you know tell the bot what they want it to do, what Apex calls to make, you know, what part of their inventory system to access, whatever. Um, the the piece that we focus on is when the customer describes how they want their bot to work, uh, they generate a file and our service uh, ingests that file essentially and causes it to run. So we, we, we call ourselves the, the engine, the runtime, you know, the, the bot runtime. And it's basically, it's like a virtual machine. Like we take bot code and we, we execute it. Uh, and that's the, the piece of the product that we've built. So, you know, it, it's not eight engineers on the entire chat bot thing, but it's eight engineers, you know, building and managing essentially the brain, the thing that, causes you know the, the bot to be out in the world doing stuff yeah i like those terms the engine the runtime the uh um, <laughs> you are you are the humans behind the automation that the bot that the bot provides <laughs> yeah yeah i think to me it really is the conversational engine which drives kind of all of the conversation um but as ian was saying right there's a lot of other pieces which uh, exist in the salesforce uh Within the Salesforce core infrastructure, which is basically what the UI becomes, uh, that's what people interact with, uh, our customers interact with on a day-to-day basis. There's a lot of work that's also done in there as well. And that has you know, many engineers, uh, you know, more than even the size of this team, uh, working on those pieces. 
and we just drive, you know, basically all of the conversation. So you've touched on this already talking about multi-regional localities and then the amount of resources, but what scale are we actually up to? Everything from, you mentioned a myriad of applications uh, and all the add-ons that Heroku provides. I'd love to have more specific information on what that actual resource profile looks like across uh, that powers all this. Uh, So today we are in all of the regions which Heroku uh, has capabilities in. So that would be six regions around the world, generally two in each geography. So in other words, like uh, North America has two, uh, two regions there matched up with, you know, where, where they're serving. Uh, Europe has, and as well as APAC. Uh, so in order to serve our customers worldwide, uh, we serve our core infrastructure, uh, where our UI is, worldwide and we put our serving for the conversational piece near where our this is our calling uh, infrastructure is so we integrate very closely uh, with the rest of the Salesforce infrastructure and hence we co-locate with them uh, in in the same uh, region or geography uh, so with that you know we use a lot of the add-ons which Heroku provides there's several which uh, are for our data services. So things like Postgres, Heroku, uh, Redis, Heroku Kafka, uh, all of these are managed services. So we pretty much almost never have to lift a finger. Uh, if we were to do nothing, it would just keep running. And that's really the beauty of it, right? And that, that's really um, what made it worthwhile for us to to consume these services because with the team of eight, that's about all the time that we have, frankly. Um, but a lot of the maintenance as well, uh, Heroku gives us notice that says, hey, your Kafka is going to be upgraded. Um, if you want to test, go ahead and test. You know, here's what you can do um, to spin up like another cluster, make sure that everything works properly. And, oh, everything looks good. You can go ahead and run this command. We'll upgrade it for you and everything's good, right? So there's a lot of those things where, you know, if you did nothing, everything would just work fine generally. Uh, but you have a lot of options and you get a lot of notifications that say, hey, uh, this is about to happen. Uh, you might want to be ready for this just in case. You know, even the non-Heroku add-ons, right? There's things that we use for logging and for metrics, uh, which are huge for us, right? Being able to uh, just say, hey, you know, this is Logplex and I can take that data and put it to uh, pretty much whichever logging uh, add-on I want to put on it, that's, you know, that gives me the flexibility to go where, you know, I've gone through and investigated these add-ons and they meet my security requirements and, uh, you know, everything works from an integration standpoint. Um, and I'm cleared to use that, then that allows me to use that particular add-on versus another one, which I may not be so confident about, but it, having that choice is really invaluable. Right. There's the there's the entirety of the internet ecosystem of services you are available to use, whether that is a homegrown or uh, in organization solution, um, whatever whatever fulfills your needs. But there is also the ecosystem of add ons that are managed, centralized billing things one click away, uh, generally as easy to scale as the rest of dinos and everything else that Heroku ourselves does maintain that's at your fingertips so long as it meets your requirements. Yeah. And I wanted to do point out too, uh, the amazing thing about that ecosystem was that 
our team kind of declares our entire system in code and includes all of our Heroku resources. And so we use Terraform incredibly heavily to define the entire stack. So all of our Heroku apps, our Heroku private spaces, um, and included with that is all our Heroku add-ons. So our data services, any external provided add-ons, we can declare those with code and know that they're you know spun up and integrated when we stamp out our entire, you know, like if we stamp out a new region um, with Terraform, the actual external service providers will be spun up as well. Accounts will be created for those at the same time. And so that integration there is helpful rather than needing to go separately sign up for a service, get that account ID, come over, you know, get it configured for your Heroku apps or whatever, just get that same integration um, at play there. And so a few lines of code and, you know, we were able to, okay, we want to use New Relic. Let's get an account up for that and integrate that with all the apps and share that license key that we get from the Heroku add-on to all the apps with Terraform and boom, we're done. You know, everything's nicely integrated. Actually, I wanted to give a shout out to David G. He's uh, on our team as well. He's uh, out of APAC, so it's like 4 a.m. in the morning, so he couldn't make it. But uh, he contributed hugely to the Terraform uh, provider for Heroku, uh, which basically filled a lot of the gaps uh, for us to be able to use Terraform to drive everything that we do in Heroku. Um, And, you know, that basically has given us the ability to pretty much fully automate, like Joss was saying. Yeah. Jaws also mentioned earlier in that the magic of attachments and even me personally, that was one of my biggest fascinations as I was learning Heroku. Uh, I think this was uh, this was definitely after my tenure when I was when I was playing around with resources as well. Uh, that bit of magic was uh, particularly special to me because uh, I reflexively had my you know small handfuls of ho- hobby apps. Uh, and I would throw a logging add-on on there. I would throw a profiling add-on on there. I'd throw a database on there. Uh, and then when I came across the attachment article, I pivoted instead to have uh, one centralized, basically a skeleton app, something that wasn't actually running code, uh, but basically owned billing and core add-on, uh, add-on attachment, and then attach it to every single other one of my apps. And because all of these add-ons are multi-app aware, they come back into the same interface, into the same profile information, preference information, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it just it just simplified everything in 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 such a quick and dramatic fashion for me. It made me it made me so happy. It was it, <laughs> it, it was so fun. It just exactly as you said, if done manually, this this breadth of information and just isolate it just centralize it down to one thing yeah for for everybody's sake since we have access to these apps i mean just just think about running zookeeper and kafka without the add-ons you know <laughs> <laughs> how much how much trouble that would be yeah and that is just one service in the, the right entirety that the the cluster of that makes up that's a good yeah we use that same exact strategy of spinning up separate apps that own different things uh whether it's a a data provider, so whether it's Postgres or, or Kafka, or if it's other providers, you know, having one central ownership. Yeah, it was someone at Heroku, you know, showed us that little neat trick, and that was huge for our overall management. Um, and that we took that a step further for security reasons. We leverage Heroku config bars very heavily because they're, you know, incredibly secure, easy, simple key value configuration. You know, so for our secrets, a lot of our secrets, we've done some really clever. Um, use of that and leveraging it to to great effect to, to distribute um you know and manage secrets across across the stack um so it's yeah 
it's some of those tricks, like once you figure that out in the ecosystem, it really, uh, it really lets you scale kind of beyond like a single app, you know, and you might graduate from a single Heroku app to a staging and a production. But then once you got to go across six regions and then you have multiple services, so you adopt this microservice, uh, you know, Rob, how many were you saying we got now? Like 10? <laughs> anyway, it, it's, it's, it's actually, it's over 10. Yeah. Um, but off the top of my head, I can think of 10. Yeah. So 10 different apps that all interact with each other over the, within the private space, you know? Uh, so we use the internal routing of Heroku as well. It's a wonderful feature for private space, internal routing between the services. So all of that kind of stuff has helped us scale kind of within a region and across the region and between all the developers owning different services um, and making it simple to do so. That's the, the beauty of it is how simple it is with not needing all the overhead of managing all those things. We've talked a lot about how it's uh, the, the amount of time and uh, operational work that it saved you so far, but uh, no road is perfectly smooth. What did you actually bump into? What were kind of potholes and speed bumps and things that you hit along the way? I think for us, because kind of prior to us using an, uh, Heroku for our development, there was a lot of you know existing processes within the company on on software development, right? And anything new takes ramp up time, and it's mainly getting the people that we work with familiar with the whole ecosystem that we were going to be running in. There's a lot of things that you end up having to integrate, um, so. There's some technical challenges, but a lot of them are also process challenges too. figuring out, okay, what is the security stance of all of this? How, how do we integrate safely uh, and all of that? Um, it's, it's new. So people are not familiar with it. So it took time, but now that we've invested that time into it uh, for other projects, which come along after it's, oh, Hey, we're using the same type of pattern. This is the same type of authentication, you know, things like that where, they just adopt what we have and it makes it a lot easier for them. But uh, I think that's, that's the main caution is anytime you're doing something new, uh, getting people to buy in uh, can take a bit of time and been there, done that. And I think we're better for it at this point. Uh, but as far as the other technical challenges, even like some of the things that uh, you had mentioned about, you know, we start developing and we structure our apps a certain way. And then you find out later, well, maybe it's a little bit better to, like you said, have attachment apps, um, so then trying to rework some of those while you're kind of in flight is obviously a little more challenging than if you were just to bring it up new. So I think those are, but, you know, for the most part, uh, we really interacted with the Heroku APIs just like everybody else in the world does. So there really is not a lot of, uh, technical challenge, I think on the Heroku end, uh, to us being able to get our service online. I mean, it really was a very pleasant experience. Yeah, and I think, Marvin, I, I do remember, too, in our early days, one of the biggest ta- challenges we had early on was how do we build our applications? So for Heroku, our slugs, like build our slugs and actually get those running on Heroku's runtime. But building those slugs within our data center that have the network firewall access to all of our source code. Um, so our source code is locked down you know, to internal networks, our libraries so like you know if you if you're a ruby app and you need gems you know if you're a java app and you need jars uh, a lot of that internally sourced stuff is is locked down so it's only available within uh, our private network and so we couldn't leverage heroku's build system right that's running external to that but 
Heroku, because of its open design and because build packs are open source and because Heroku's platform API lets you basically, you know, uh, create slugs and release them through an API, we were able to actually replicate, not replicate because Heroku's is much better, but essentially build Heroku's build system within our own data center, within, you know, Jenkins to basically build our slugs and push them out to Heroku so that we could then release them at Heroku. And that wouldn't have been possible. That was a challenge. That was probably one of our hardest things to overcome early on. Uh, But guess what? Heroku had the APIs needed. You know, we didn't have to get any new API. No new APIs were developed for that. It was available. And we just figured out, oh, wow, I can actually build a slug locally, tarball it up, push it up to Heroku, and release it. You know, and that, that was huge for us. Right. To tie that all together, uh, the the slug terminology is the uh, resulting application. When you approach Heroku and you bring your own application, you have your code that typically also has the specifications of, as you said, the Ruby runtime, gem dependencies, Java and jars. Uh, the Heroku build process is you specify your code, you push it to Heroku, specify the build pack. The build pack will continue to use the Ruby example puts everything that's needed to run Ruby and most of the key OS internals uh, in place, puts your code in there, and then gathers any and all dependencies, gems, and everything else that are all typically publicly available via Ruby gems or some other gem server that you typically provide authentication to or just a third-party source in general. Uh, And this process all runs on Heroku, so it has security and access rules as Heroku. Uh, And as Jaws was describing, because we publish build packs as a repository on GitHub, you can take all of those tools all of the version-specific specification, everything else, and run the build process on your own infrastructure, which gives it privileged access to internal libraries, dependencies, and things where you have more stringent security rules. And then you create the slug externally to Heroku and just give it back to Heroku to host. So it's, it's the same process run within a different security context, which is openly available because we, I mean, uh, certainly Ruby and Java and everything else aren't ours. We create tools to put it together and you've implemented a step above due to your specific requirements. Yeah, that was beautifully said. It's as if I've done this for many years. <laughs> Rob, Ian, was there, was there anything language specific that you guys ran across? Some of the, some of the things I know, uh, like Jaws was saying, you know, we had to get locked down internally which it's a little, it's a little tough, but it's almost like as if you just treat it like Docker or something. Like you know, as long as we can build it internally, uh, it's it's perfect because we don't have to worry about where the artifacts end up or how to expose them. Uh, so yeah, like Jaws was saying, it, it managed to work out beautifully because we're able to just publish to those APIs. It takes a lot of stress off our plate, I say. I think we may have a. Uh jump the gun on this talking about attachments in particular but what did you what did you learn from this process what did you take away that was new and specific to this project no, nothing really i mean i know we we all we've all just used just another app you know i mean we've all used heroku i think <laughs> cuz coming from the ruby world most of us uh we we have very fond memories of heroku <laughs> um and i was just saying the just too i i use app in a totally different context uh, I'm talking about the individual applications, but 
I just looked at our Heroku space and we had 110, maybe even more. I counted quick, but that's a lot. I mean, for a team of eight, that that's pretty impressive. 110 yeah. plus apps managed in code by eight people, and everybody kind of knows what's going on with the audit trails and everything. So, you know, Heroku continues to blow me away. It's a great system. I take it that that means, as you were describing 10 apps earlier, uh, you say app to mean front-end, back-end data, and probably even more particular subsets in there. 10 apps, six regions, you said over 110. So we're talking just shy of 20 apps per region that makes up this kind of single app identifier that you were describing. Yeah, so we have multiple services. I guess that's probably the more proper term. Uh, But yeah, we run multiple services, which all interact with one another. And each one of those services, of course, they're deployed to uh, kind of the six production regions. We also have a uh, staging environment. We have, you know, our internal environments as well, right? So if you sum all that stuff up, looks like that's about 110 today. Yeah, and then that ends up being the 110 Heroku apps, yeah. Right. And some of those are like the meta level, like you were mentioning, Jason, like a New Relic app that manages the, the add-on for New Relic and consolidated billing there for all the apps to kind of fan out and share, yeah. So some of those apps are very uh, lightweight, not running any dynos. Um, some are just managing some secrets that are shared across the the rest of them. So, um, hundred. Say 100. We'll I say 100. I, <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I skipped those, but 100 is close enough, but... Each one of our services is versioned, so well, there's a couple that are versioned. So we're running three different release versions. It would be incredibly difficult to do if it wasn't so easy to see everything at a glance on Heroku. Any other fun anecdotes from this process, from building it up and and running it so far? We're you know we're kind of outside the core code system at the company, you know, because we're we're on Heroku and we built this thing up, you know, from scratch. And that allows us to have very fast turnaround time. So a bug was found and, you know, within like an hour, we had found the issue, fixed the issue, released the issue. And when we kind of dropped that note in Slack, uh, someone who works on, you know, the other other part of the organization where things are a little bit more legacy and crusty, you know, like you could, you could like hear their head exploding through Slack. <laughs> they were like, you, you did that in 45 minutes. That's amazing. And, you know, usually there'd be a bit more process involved, but <laughs> that's my favorite story about it. Yeah, we found a bug and we were able to push it out as fast as the pipeline could take us pretty much. But we, we talked about our process, but I don't think we talked about when things really go bad. Between all the monitoring, when we deploy, we, we pretty much do single ticket deploys out to production. But one of the beautiful things is how fast it is to roll back when something breaks. So all you do is you just like use Heroku, roll back a version, and pretty much don't affect any customer, which is an amazing thing. You know, that would be pretty much hand-rolled uh, in a lot of different ways, but Heroku just kind of has that. I want to also expand on one one small thing that Rob said, but actually it's, it's really huge for us, is that when we're, whenever we do deploy... Uh, it's one feature at a time. And because our pipeline can support that velocity, right, we are able to do that versus having to batch up multiple features and then not knowing what broke uh, a given release. Uh, so yeah, that flexibility to roll forward and roll back quickly, that is really big. I mean, that's much more than, you know, I think a lot of different other processes internal to a lot of companies can do. 
Um, but you, once you see it and you can see how easy it is to basically troubleshoot issues and, and get back from there, um, you just can't go back. Is there any aspect that allows you folks to take advantage of the bot's capabilities as a user? Yeah, I think the easiest one for us, like we had this, uh, we still haven't done this, guys, but a chatbot to actually do a lot of our operational actions. So when you think about like a chat ops or like, I know Heroku probably does a lot, you know, like um, integrations with Slack and things like that, where you can uh, control your deployments maybe, or do a lot of like rolling back or, you know, database migrations or, you know, all of those actions that take some sort of manual prompting or manual interactions. We've definitely toyed around with the idea of like building a chatbot for ourselves to do that, <laughs> do that very thing. But I think I think it's still in development, right, guys? That's still in development. Yeah, we need a, a new Slack channel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take the functionality that Heroku designs and interfaces and plug it into this for your own sake of operational, uh, as you said, deployment or uh, reactionary to any ongoings or anything else along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Because we've scaled so far out, we've had to abstract a lot of that with tooling. And some of that tooling does take, you know, you have to take action on those things. And those are something that definitely a chatbot could take care of for you. Now, if it was machine learning based, you know, there's always room for error, though. And so that's where, you know, with chatbots, you have to train it. You know, if you're doing anything where you want to detect intent or, you know, train the bot to understand if you said it one way, but not the other way. Right. I want to roll back to version two. You would, you would want the bot to hopefully roll back to version two, right? And understand what that means and not misinterpret that um, without prompting and saying, are you sure you meant that? Or did you mean to actually do this? <laughs> so you, know, you, you want to make sure it's trained well if you do any kind of that. But even just basic, uh, basic commands, I could see a lot of value in that, you know, to speed up and integrate that with Slack and uh, handle, you know, handle our high level operations a little bit better. It's like the... Uh... New wave Hubot. <laughs> Ian, Rob, Jocelyn, Marvin, my fellow Ohana, thank you guys all very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Jason. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.